AJ, I'm so excited. The wait is finally over and all the time that we have spent in the back working on this. We are launching our new coaching program built on our Charm OS, AI-driven daily accountability and a high-value support network to help you reach your goals faster. We're kicking off a 12-week journey that sets to revolutionize the way you connect with others. Led by yours truly, AJ and Johnny, with 17 years of experience and research having impacted the lives of over 11,000 clients worldwide. That's right. This isn't just a program. It's an epic adventure that will reshape the way you approach social interactions. Whether you're looking to enhance your professional network, boost your confidence, or level up your dating game, this program has got you covered. But here's the catch. We're only opening this up to the first 12 ready-to-go participants. And as a podcast listener, you're first in line. Are you ready to begin the new year with the help of a team backing you up? Join our active support group, immerse yourself in live sessions, and watch as your social skills skyrocket. We will guide you every step of the way, sharing insights, strategies, and world-world tactics that you hear right on this show with you guys in our course. If you're ready to join our newest coaching program, head over to theartofcharm.com slash charmos to apply today. Theartofcharm.com slash charm OS. Your epic journey awaits. Welcome to the Art of Charm podcast, where we break down the science of powerful communication and winning mindsets so you have the cheat code to succeed with people. Every episode is jam packed with actionable steps to unlock the hidden superpowers inside of you. Level up with us each week by listening to interviews with the best in business, psychology, and relationships. We distill thousands of hours of research into the most effective tools and the latest science so you can start winning today. Let's face it. In order to be seen and heard, your communication needs to cut through the noise, and we're going to show you how. I'm AJ, successfully recovered introvert, entrepreneur, and self-development junkie. And I'm Johnny Zubak, former touring musician, promoter, rock and roller, and co-founder here at The Art of Charm. And for the last 15 years, we've trained thousands of top performers and teams from every background. We have dedicated our lives to teaching men and women all they need to know about communication, networking, and relationships. You shouldn't have to settle for anything less than extraordinary. All right, let's kick off today's show. Today, we're talking with Bob Sutton, organizational psychologist and professor at Stanford. We break down how to become a friction fixer and accelerate your career. Bob is a New York Times bestselling author and here with us to discuss his upcoming book, The Friction Project, how smart leaders make the right things easier and the wrong things harder. He shares the secrets of transforming workplace friction into a positive and making your job easier. We discuss how to spot and avoid hollow Easter bunnies to improve workplace dynamics, the reason self-awareness and your cone of friction is so important to your success, navigating friction, and steps to immediately increase your self-awareness, how Google and Microsoft changed their culture to adopt friction and innovate, and utilizing positive friction effectively to create problem-solving and productivity on your team. Welcome to the show, Bob. So great to have you. Oh, it's great to see you, AJ. We would love to hear what inspired the Friction Project. Well, a lot of frustration inspired the Friction Project. Just going nuts. So uh, my co-conspirator, Huggy Rao, and I, we uh, published a book in 2014 called Scaling Up Excellence. And there are these, all these companies, well, Salesforce, Facebook, Google, they wanted to scale, baby, scale. They scaled and it was like, look what I've done to myself. 
there's all these people, there's all these procedures, there's all this complexity. I feel like I'm walking in muck. It's really hard to get things done. And there was this one woman who said to, to Huggy when we teach executives, and she said, uh, they keep saying they want me to show initiative and will and creativity. And every day I just feel like, how am I supposed to do that? That, that was the kind of thing that got us going. Also in our own university, our own employer, since I've been here, I've been here 40 years. I'm an old fart. Uh, it's gotten harder and harder to get things done. It actually turns out that at Stanford, we seem to have about the same number of administrators as we do um, students, more or less. It's within a couple hundred. And I, I love every administrator I've ever met individually, but collectively, they unwittingly just add more and more stuff for us to do and they keep each other busy. You know, it's, you know, the old joke, if a town's got one lawyer, they're broke. If a town has two lawyers, they're rich because they just spend all time suing each other. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so, so that was the, that was got, and I can get to the good news, but it started out of fric, out of friction and in, in, in frustration. But uh, there's, there's actually a lot of good news in the book. And I, I became more optimistic as this adventure unfolded. That was the good news. So this, bring, this book brings up a lot of great points for entrepreneurs and people who are in business. But there's another aspect to this book that is, that is unique to this podcast, which is that those same frictions, if they enter into personal relationships make them daunting and complex and makes people want to quit. And then <laughs> when it becomes difficult to hang out with somebody, we opt out of spending time with them. When it's easy to hang out with people, then we're going to opt to hang out with those people more. And if we are looking around and we're asking ourselves, you know, I ask people to hang out. I ask people to do stuff. No one returns my text. I don't know what's going on. Well, I think the first thing that you should be asking yourself is, are you putting in friction for people to hang out with you? Are you making it hard for them to say yes? Yes. Well, I, I think, you know, I don't think that bosses and personal relationships are, <laughs> or work colleagues are all exactly the same, but I think you are getting on some interesting parallels and I think this is perilous error for me. Like I'm an organizational psychologist. Like, like you should never go to me for dating advice. Ask my adult children. Um, <laughs> but, but, but in in my in my in personal relationships, that yes, to me, there's at least three kinds of people that I tend to avoid. To be honest, like people, and that's a certain sort of friction because they leave you feeling bad. Yes. And that, the people who you just can't get out of your head. Ugh. Those are the people I don't want to. I don't want to hang out with. Um, then there's the people who mean really well, but they make everything so complicated. They give you a list of forty-seven things to do, and then and then they also micromanage you and criticize you because you're not doing as well in the process. This this could be anything from getting organized to having sex. I mean, it's like you know, there's some people that are kind of, you know, a different kind of friction. And, and then there's and then there's people who are just boring. So, <laughs> so that's my yeah. sort of quick theory. <laughs> And I think it's important that we look at ourselves. And part of this book for me was raising self-awareness because I think we've all experienced friction on the other end and we hate it, we avoid it, we talk bad about that person, we try not to get involved in projects with them, but we often don't look at ourselves and potentially the friction that we're causing others, whether it's personal or professional. So what can we do to raise our own self-awareness around friction that we're bringing? 
So that's a beautiful statement. And the way that we described in the book is that uh, all of us have sort of a cone of friction, that we have the opportunity to make life better or worse for everybody who we touch. And in the workplace, I mean, we talk about everybody from Satya Nadella, who is the CEO of Microsoft, who, who really did a whole bunch of things to get rid of uh, really uh, destructive relationships because they had they had a reward system and, and a culture where you got ahead by treating other people like dirt and, and not cooperating with them. And he changed the whole reward system. So that's get that's at the very top. And then my favorite example is, so what state are you guys in right now, uh, the United States? I'm in Colombia. California. Yeah, oh, good, me too. Okay, so so one of my favorite uh, experiences in doing the bill, book is I went to the California DMV to re-register my, my mother. <laughs> Talk about it, friction. And I... <laughs> And I thought I was it was going to be hell. So I get there at 6 in the morning, the 7.30 in the morning, and there's 60 people in line. And it's like, okay, if I'm out of here by 11, i just like, I'm at peace. It's, it's going to suck. And then at 7.40, this guy, this really nice guy, nice, DMV, nice, walks down the line, asks each of us what we're doing there. Some people, he says, no, you can't get a passport here. You're wasting your time. Other people, here's a form. You don't have to wait in line. Just fill it out right now and give it to me. He gave me my form. I filled it out. He told me what window to go to. Everybody was nice, and I was done by 8.15. I was so confused. And then, so now, Huggy and I are doing a case study with the people who run the California DMV, and they're dedicated to making our experiences better as, as citizens. Just for example, there's something called a real ID that everybody in California is going to have to yep. get eventually. They have it, and they're doing time and motion studies. They have it down from the time you get to the office to you leave, because you have to have a wet signature, uh, from, down from 28 to 8 minutes. Uh, so I'm talking to a Google executive last week. Google has really serious, because pro- they've gotten so big, they have so many processes, they have so many fiefdoms, they, ha- they actually have a lot of friction problems. So <laughs> I said to her, if the DMV can fix themselves, you can fix yourself. <laughs> so, so, you know, everybody's always saying Silicon Valley, it's a s- solution to everything. Now my motto is, if only, the, if only these big bureaucracies in the Silicon Valley that, you know, this is like they scaled, baby scaled, uh, they, they need to learn from the DMV. So, that, so that's my motto. <laughs> <laughs> And the DMV really, I was really impressed with them. Yeah, I'm shocked. It's shocking to hear, to be honest. Uh, I'm still I try shocked. to avoid it as much as possible. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, but, 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 but that actually, that's one of the things that helps is I think that we all try to avoid it. It actually reduces the load on them in some ways, too. But, uh, but they, they really are making progress and they really are citizen centric and they're using technology and they're working on their culture to have the people be a little bit you know, more civilized or less uncivilized. They're working on all that sort of stuff. Obviously, the DMV was frictionful, <laughs> looked at themselves, made some improvements. So if we look at ourselves, how do we recognize that we're causing friction on others? And what can we do to remove the friction that we may be causing on others? Ooh, I like that. So so this this is this notion, and this is true for all other kinds of organizational change too, is that if you just point fingers at other people and say, I'm not the problem you are, it doesn't work because because what happens is it becomes an orphan problem and, and and it's all about blame. And yes, and like I'm I'm as happy to do recreational bitching as much as the next person, but when the stuff actually gets fixed, it's when everybody takes it upon themselves to fix it. So what one of the examples 
that we have in the book, and we've been in touch with the this doctor. There's a doctor named Melinda Ashton. Uh, she's at Hawaii Pacific. It's the largest healthcare system in Hawaii, and we all know. I don't know about in Colombia, but in the in much of the rest of the world, when you go to the doctor, instead of looking you in the eye, they just look at the screen of the, the electronic health records. We probably all had this experience. And and so that's the electronic health records add a lot of friction to the healthcare experience. But rather than saying, oh, we have to throw the whole things out, out what she did was she ran a, a sort of a, a change effort called Getting Rid of Stupid Stuff. That, and this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, Getting Rid of Stupid Stuff. And she had everybody go through who was part of the system and make suggestions about ways they could subtract sources of unneeded friction. And usually that was steps. So just for example, they they got rid of uh, one of the steps that uh, every nurse and nurse assistant was required to uh, make when they did rounds. And that got rid of 24 seconds for each visit. And this ended up being like something like a thousand hours a month in the whole system. And to me, that's a pretty good model of rather than just complaining about it and pointing fingers, we all worked together to find the the problems. And then there was a group who had the power to implement the solutions. And, and that's the opposite of it's a simple example, but that's the opposite of teaching it, of treating it as an orphan problem. And it's also a sign that, uh, gee, I, I have some stories about things that get fixed suddenly and all at once. Uh, but in real life, this is, it's like a discipline. It's like, go no, like exercising once doesn't seem to work. If you do it once a year, it doesn't seem to work. You get, you, you got to do it as part of a discipline. Well, that brings up an interesting concept that you have in the book, which is chicken effers and hollow Easter bunnies. <laughs> <laughs> can, can can I use the word fuckers in this? Am I allowed? Absolutely. I don't know. You're allowed. <laughs> so so this comes from my friend Becky Margiat and Becky, she's t- she went she went to West Point was when she went to West Point a long time ago and she was one of the only women there. She was she's like five one and you know it, 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 and I love when I talk to Becky is it talk about friction the way she said she got through the hazing at West Point when she was a first year she said. My view was that the upperclassmen who were taunting me were just really funny. So I'd mostly get in trouble for laughing at them. So that's Becky. Um, anyhow, so she goes through her military service, and, 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 and then she look, is looking for something to do after. She's in the military, is, is a captain for seven or eight years. And uh, she gets involved in the homelessness um, problem, which is very serious, of course, in the United States. Eventually, she led a campaign that found homes for 100,000 homeless um, Americans and has done all this stuff. But one of the things that she learned in the military was that when something went wrong, and and she has a story that she kind of wakes up her commanding officer at um, three in the morning, and she looks at Becky blearily, and Becky describes the problem, and the commanding officer says, well, who's fucking this chicken? Which is apparently military speak for who is in charge of fixing this thing? And so then fast forward to the 100,000 Homes campaign that Becky and her team is trying to get people all over the country to actually find homes for homeless people, because that was her definition of success. Homeless person, put them in a home, that counts as one. So, uh, And there were some folks where people would just talk and talk and talk and talk and do nothing. She called them hollow Easter bunnies. You know, the kind of the people, the, the, the worst, the people who use talk as a substitute for action, they're bullshitters. And she started giving this little speech about who's fucking this chicken. And people love that speech. 
And so they start, so they gave this award to people who actually got stuff done, which was they and they gave him a little tin um, chicken, a rooster actually, because <laughs> that's what fucks with chicken is a rooster, right? Sure. That's my understanding of how these things work. And uh, so anyway, so so that's that's Becky, and Becky is totally a character. I mean, uh, not, and now she's helping other uh, large nonprofits. Uh, like the Gates Foundation with other sorts of large scale change. But that's Becky. And, and, and so and, and the lesson in sort of in without the obscenities is that in, in organizations that are good at fixing friction, uh, rather than using talk as a substitute for action. So the bullshit, the plans, the meetings, the speeches, the training, which is all nice and it does motivate action. But when it becomes a substitute for actually doing stuff, that's when we start having a red a red flag that we're you know just uh, spewing out nonsense and not actually getting stuff done. I remember having a, a we had an employee who always wanted to have the meeting after the meeting to discuss the meeting, and we're like, well, we just I don't, and I'm like looking at him like, how do you think that this is rational or or going to help us? move forward. But this brings up a very good point. I would think in some of these companies where there are so many employees, there are people who are causing messes. So they have something to do or something to talk about or to have a meeting about so they can actually get a chicken fucker to come fix the thing that they are the mess that they are well, making. Well, well yeah, yes, yeah, well, so, 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 so we, we, the, the general disease, we call this addition sickness, and uh, we have a chapter in addition sickness, and, and in general, there's a bunch of academic psychological research that show that we human beings naturally are wired to solve problems by adding rather than subtracting complexity, that, that, that's standard, um, but then organizations reward people who do that too. And and the classic thing that I'm just thinking of you describing the person I can I have the picture in my I mind. Think all of us have this Stanford bureaucrat. <laughs> um, and, and but what happens is it, with addition sickness in a place like Stanford University or Google, same problem right now is that if you want to get paid more, you build the biggest possible fiefdom of people. Let's just say who are bean counters. Let's just, just use this as an example. And when they're bean counters, like what happened? The more of them there are. Like the more work they're going to create for one another and for you, because I'm, obviously whenever I submit my expenses, I always do something wrong or I go a dollar fifty over some category I never heard of. So therefore, we, it has to go back four times. And so, so th this idea about, uh, about bureaucracies creating work for one another is one of the problems. And, but, but to be optimistic, you know, we've been bitching a lot and I do love bitching, but to be optimistic, there are organizations where this is just intolerable. Uh, where people who waste people's time and waste people's money, they, they actually are not glorified. Um, and, and two that I would pick, actually three, one is Walmart. And Walmart is like whatever, you know, it is so tightly ran. It is just amazing. I mean, they, they are, maybe they should pay their employees a little bit more, but I'm talking about the bottom. But my God, they are so efficient about not wasting people's time. They have, they have a very sort of simple structure. And they're the largest private employer in the United States. They only have eight hierarchical levels. I mean, that's kind of amazing. Uh, I think Google has probably like 29 or something. I'm probably making this up. But um, there are organizations that do this well. Also, Apple, which is very good about not overhiring people or overloading people. And uh, in Amazon too, those are some of the ones I know that actually find ways to to avoid unnecessary friction. And they're not perfect. Nothing's nobody's perfect. 
Well, to transition from the bitching. So I think for a lot of us, when we think about friction, it feels negative, right? We, we don't want to slow down. We don't want friction in our lives. We want to be friction-free and efficient and enjoying ourselves. But there are cases and instances where friction is actually a good thing. So let's speak about the positives of friction. See, so the, I love that question. The analogy that, that I've been using lately, and, I, and this feels right, is so if you like you're a NASCAR or a Formula One f- fan, the people who win the races are not the people who put the pedal to the metal and never take it off. Because if you do that, well, you, you don't make it around the first turn. You got to hit the brakes. And then you do have to take a pit stop occasionally to sort of recharge. Even So if you use that as, as sort of as sort of um, analogy, there's time when you need to hit the gas, times when you need to hit the brake. The classic time when you need to hit the brakes, if you look at uh, the research we've done and the behavioral sciences in general, are when um, you don't know what to do, so you're really confused. That's a situation, you, you know, as long as the plane's not crashing or the patient's not squirting blood like crazy, uh, that's, that's a point where you kind of got to slow down and figure out what to do before you do something stupid. So, so, so that, and we have lots of examples of startups. Uh, one is Waze, where the CEO sort of figured out, let's stop hiring. Uh, let's stop doing any product development. Let's just take a few weeks and figure out what's going on. And Waze is a good example. They did that for six weeks and then they hit the gas after they figured it out and started hiring, doing more product development. Uh, so, so that's one part. And another thing, which I really got interested in recently is there's some interesting uh, studies out of Germany that where they, there's old studies that showed that the higher people's IQs are, the faster they solve problems. This turns out to not be quite right. The new research shows that really smart people solve simple problems quickly, but complex problems more slowly because they fi- they slow down to figure out what the hell's going on and glue all the complexity together. And in the analogy we have for organizational life is if it's a really complicated problem, like a quick, easy fix probably isn't going to work. So that's two. And then I'll throw in one more and then see what else we want to talk about is, uh, I, and, and I love talking to John about being in Colombia. You actually just, you just sort of lived this, this notion. Uh, there's this really cool research on this notion of savoring. So it's the notion that, uh, so, you know, there's research on coping, which is, oh, things are terrible. How do I avoid having them ruin my life? But savoring is people with good mental health, they slow down and they enjoy the good stuff in life. They, they pause to reflect about what's wonderful or to anticipate, they maybe spend a few minutes saying, oh, oh, dinner is just going to be great tonight, rather than just rushing to dinner. So that's an, another thing that I think good leaders do is they get people to slow down to appreciate whatever that whatever they're doing and to take pride in their work. So that that's the 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 other sort of part of adding some friction that we've gotten pretty obsessed with lately. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. 
What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze your online marketing campaigns. And sign up today for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. And now a quick message from our newest sponsor. Remember, supporting our sponsors is the best way to support the show. That's right. AJ, did you know socks, tees, and underwear are the three most requested clothing items in homeless shelters? I had absolutely no idea. Bombas knows, and they're doing something about it, making ridiculously comfortable versions of all three and donating one for every item sold. With all the clothing brands out there, it's nice to find some basics that don't just feel good, but do good too. That is completely amazing. And that's why we're so excited to be working with our newest sponsor, Bombas. To date, Bombas, one purchase equals one donated commitment, has helped customers donate over 100 million essential clothing items to people facing homelessness. That's a lot of good done by people just buying the Bombas they wear every day. Visit bombas.com slash charm and use code charm for 20% off your first purchase. And once you try Bombas, you'll know why so many people have purchased and donated so many. The comfort geniuses at Bombas work tirelessly to make your everyday things your favorite things. Whether there's an arch-supporting sock that feels like it was sculpted to your foot, a buttery soft tee with no itchy tag, or underwear that feels like nothing while supporting everything. The best part, AJ, Bombas has a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you got the wrong size, your dog chews up your socks, or a pair vanishes in the washing machine, and you know they will, it's easy to get a free return, exchange, or replacement. There's nothing worse than when Puppers gets a hold of my favorite Bombas athletic socks. They're precision engineered for being active with sweat wicking power, impact cushioning, blister defense, and no annoying toe seams that get between you and your goals. I try to limit my essential purchases to one time a year. And I was so pumped to know that Bombas has my underwear, socks, and tees needs completely covered. I have been loving the soft underwear and tees here in Medellin. Ready to get comfy and give back? Head over to bombas.com slash charm and use code charm for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash charm and use code charm at checkout. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data. And a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people because they're all going to give you the best face forward. 
That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So friction is something that a lot of us are like, ah, avoid, let's try to become more efficient. But sometimes without that friction, we can make the wrong decision, misguided decisions. And you have a great example of Google Glasses. So I know about 10 years ago, I was at a music festival and saw this guy walking around with this device on his eyes and kind of pointed and laughed with my friends. And of course, it became a big joke in Silicon Valley. But this was something that was near and dear to Sergey Brin's heart. Like he wanted this thing to be the future and moved fast, took all Google's resources and threw it at this problem without any friction, and it was a major flop. It's kind of interesting because, you know, when I will give uh, my book to various people to read early, and one of the people I gave it to last week, and she, and she said, oh, this is just a great book, and then she writes me back, oh, shit, I was on the Google Glass team. Did you have to go after us? <laughs> but what what happened, according to her report in the New York Times, but is is that... It's, it's a product development team, and this is consistent with the notion that creativity can take a long time and be messy, and it's hard to rush creativity too much. But what happened is, um, is, is the team didn't think it was ready, but there's this old thing of uh, don't show stupid people unfinished work. And I'm not saying that uh, what Sergey Brin is generally stupid, but I think he had a moment of stupidity and possibly arrogance here. And, and he got overly excited with this product, and they're like, no, 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 it's not ready. Yeah, yeah, it is. And he ripped it out of their hands. And the rest is history. It was total failure. Um, so that's that's something where you have a when people have too much power and not enough friction stopping them, it can be a problem. So is there an equilibrium? You know, we talked a lot about bureaucracies and things growing at such a scale where we're just creating busy work. Is there a lean mindset that we should take, and is there too lean where we remove all friction and then get those negative results? I, I like that. In some ways, that's a great question. So the question is, what's the sort of optimal one? I don't know whether this is to be self-critical or realistic, but I don't think that there's any management book or any how-to book on earth that you can just take it, read it, and then your life is cured. There might be, to me, what, what, what I tend to view a book like, like mine or almost any book that I read that I think is going to be useful, it, it's sort of like my life is a series of meals that I put together. And uh, gee, this might be a nice menu to help me assemble various meals. And, and to me, that's how I think of it. And, and I think it is presumptuous of me to tell uh, the leaders, managers, of anybody who's ever had a job in this to, how to do their job, because I can't know enough about it. Maybe some of the principles like adopting this subtraction mindset or slowing down to save your life, those, those things might help you in specific instances. But well... I don't want to talk about it in too much detail, but you said a little technical problem. Um, I don't think my book can help you solve it. I think <laughs> I think that you had to figure it out with with your team. So I mean, but but to me, that's the classic sort of things that uh, that I don't want to overclaim. I think that 
what is an optimal equilibrium does help. And and some of the analogies help. One that really helps me a lot, which I've already said once, is this idea of uh, think of yourself as as being a NASCAR or Formula One racer. You don't go full speed the entire time. And and even even like a, a friend of mine, oh Andy Papathanasiu, he used to head. He, he was like a pit crew head. Um, at Hendricks Motorsports. And then he was like the athletic director that had like eight different pit crews. And he said what we figured out was the teams that tried to go the absolute fastest were not usually the best because what they do is they'd have four pit stops that were like five seconds. And then they'd have one that was 11 seconds. So what you want is consistency. So that's a case where he, he talks about more rhythm and pace rather than going completely pedal to the metal because you're, you're, when you're harried, you tend to make mistakes. But, that's, but, but I don't know the exact optimal amount of, of going slow versus uh, fast when it comes to a pit stop, but Andy, Andy does. <laughs> <laughs> so recognizing that a lot of this is to raise awareness both on the negative and the positive impacts of friction so you can have these conversations with your team members and as you're trying to solve problems, recognize that those two things can exist. We can move too fast and get negative results, or we can bog ourselves down being too slow and not have enough chicken efforts in place to help us move things forward. Yeah, I, I love that. And just as a little addendum, I would add in the most constructive, at least teams and organizations that I've been part of, when the problem gets solved, it's because people aren't just pointing fingers at others, they're taking a look in the mirror, which is we're back to self-awareness, which John has brought up. So when we look at ourselves and our career, a big part of our audience wants to accelerate things, wants to get promoted, wants to move into these leadership roles, but they might not be in a leadership role just yet. So they're feeling the friction, but they may not feel that they have much control over the friction. So what advice do you have for someone at that stage of their career where they're in a very friction-filled situation and they want to move up to leadership, what are some of the best things they can do to become a friction fixer and get that career success they're looking for? To me, there's two parts of that, that if you are on a team where you have colleagues and a boss who, when you go to them, when you do good things, even when you criticize them, nicely and say we can fix it to me that's the, that's the sign if if your boss is being receptive then you're probably okay but if you are in a situation and this is kind of in some ways goes back to the no asshole rule um when i talk to my students who do well in their careers versus not so well the ones who do well if they're in good situations they stay in them and they keep making them better but uh one of my favorite expressions is uh quitting is underrated and um, if you are in a situation, this isn't just about friction, I mean, where uh, you give a real authentic sort of uh, effort and are trying to help and either you're being ignored or disrespected or uh, for doing it, then, gee, you might start looking for another job. So, so to me, a lot of it is picking your context. And I realize that many people, you know, they might be in a situation where it's harder to find a job and they, I'm not saying they should quit immediately, but uh, just every student I've had over years, the smart ones know when to leave. So recognizing that that environment and context is so key to your success and being a, a friction fixer or could create a lot of needless friction in your life and stress, part of that to me seems not only having the interview process and doing a great job, but then talking to your new potential team members about how do they handle friction on the team and, and how are those things seen by superiors so that if it's seen in a good light and there seems to be upward mobility tied to fixing friction, and that's a great place for you. But if it seems like the team 
is recognizing friction, can't do anything about it, then maybe we have an asshole boss on our hands and we don't want to put ourselves in that situation. Or, or they're just incompetent. And, and I, I would also add that uh, my, my wife was master of this during the years. She was a lawyer and stuff. That the best people often for finding out whether or not you want to work for that person is to talk to somebody who used to work for them because uh, they are more likely to tell you the truth. I have a couple friends who got fired by Elon Musk. I think they, they give you very accurate information about what it's like working for him, and it ain't pretty. Yeah, recognizing that oftentimes the reason people leave is because it is that situation that you don't want to be putting yourself in. Or they get fired for, for doing something constructive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's not seen well. Well, there's another aspect of that too, which all of these companies are going to have a particular culture. That culture either... Uh, has been set up because it, everything else was neglected and that's the culture that built around that neglection or it was intentional to build a specific culture that would induce a, a certain type of productivity that would serve that company very well. You're not going to be suited for all of those companies. And in the book, there's a wonderful example. I, I believe it was Google where the, the interview process eventually gotten so out of hand that people were going up to 20 some interviews and wondering what is going on, which is utterly ridiculous. Now, as somebody who is interviewing, you need to start to take notice that if you're on your 10th interview, <laughs> you might be wanting to look at a lot of friction. It might be a lot of friction. And it might not be the culture that you want to be entering in if you're looking for the fast track to leadership. Well, well so that, that example this is from <laughs> Laszlo Bach. He's the, well, he was basically head of HR for about 10 years at, uh, at Google. And I've had him fact check this multiple times. And, and this is, a, to me, a beautiful example of using good friction to get rid of bad friction. They had a tradition which actually made sense in the early days when they had a few hundred people. of They'd interview the hell out of people for both technical skill and, and are these the people we can grow a great company with? So it was actually, they were really, really picky in the early days and that made sense. But then it became a tradition that what is it, what got you here right. won't get you there. John, to your point, they were doing, uh, and I, I remember fact-checking the first time for the Wall Street Journal, I said 5, 10, 12 interviews and Laszlo said 25 once. At 25 interviews, just imagine the scheduling for whoever is scheduling that and imagine the poor candidate. And so Laszlo just put in this simple rule, if you need to do more than four interviews for a job candidate, you have to write me to get written approval. So that's friction. It's good friction that got rid of bad friction. And he said that the excessive use of interviews dropped almost immediately. Oh, I imagine so. I, so. <laughs> 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 but, 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 but that's a case where I, a little bit more mindfulness is also part of that, too. For the candidate's position, you know, Google's a very prestigious job. Not only does it have all these benefits and perks, but it can really set you up for a career success. So there's going to be a ton of candidates who are willing to do 27 interviews and never give that feedback and never quit. So internally for Google, they're like, well, we're still getting candidates showing up for the 26th interview. So where's the friction? So that was probably true when Google had about a thousand employees and was the coolest employer in Silicon Valley. But one of the reasons Laszlo had to put this rule in is, well, actually during that era, Facebook was the coolest um, employer. You know, everybody has their moment, the cool, coolest employer. And, you know, people would do two interviews and get a job at Facebook and they'd take it and they'd just leave the Google process. So, so that when you're, the, when you're the coolest kid on the block, you can get away with abusing people a little bit more, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the prestige covered up a lot of the friction yeah, internally. Yeah. So, 
You mentioned this concept of power poisoning in the book, and I would love to unpack that for our audience and what we can do if we're experiencing that. Uh, this is one of the things that I've been studying in various guises for years, but there's all of this behavioral science evidence. I'll talk about two. One is a lot of times when people get in positions of power, they don't have to struggle with the little inconveniences that the rest of us do. Um, you know, at, at the top of like a giant bank or something, you might have your own private plane and all that sort of stuff. But it even might be little things like like we talk about uh, the moment, the notion that General Motors, that um, employees down to a fairly low level, they don't have to deal with the hassle of buying a car. So that's one thing is, is that, that one of the things that causes friction blindness is that when people get power, they don't understand the inconveniences that their customers and other employees go through. That's one thing. The other thing is there's a bunch of evidence that uh, when we get in positions of power, something happens to our brain. This guy, Dr. Keltner, who wrote the book called The Power Paradox, got it right here, uh, he even has made the argument that when people get power, it's almost like they have, have brain damage. And what they do is they focus more on their own needs, less on the needs of others, and they act like the rules don't apply to them. And, and he's done all these studies where the fancier, the more expensive the car people um, drive, the less likely they are to let pedestrians go by at the, at the stopwalk, all, all this sort of crazy stuff. The danger when people are in power is they just they just don't pay much attention to what um, happens to people with less power. And there's also this thing, uh, and just think about a baboon in a troop, Okay. So uh, in a baboon troop or in any organization, uh, attention is devoted up the hierarchy. So in the baboon, they look at the alpha male every 20 or 30 seconds because that dude can really hurt him or really help him, right? And that's kind of like that. So the problem with power poisoning is we aren't as aware about how our actions impose friction on other people. And just the, the, the classic thing, and we start the book with this, the first paragraph is a senior Stanford administrator wrote um, a like 2,000 word email with a 7,000 word attachment and sent it to uh, 2,000 or so employees. And, and being the obnoxious, well, person I can be sometime, I started complaining to her boss when I sent her an edit and said, gee, uh, this could have been, a let's do the math. Suppose this was only 1,000 words. Um, actually, it was 1,266 words, and I said it, should, it could have been uh, 600, and, and I don't know why we needed such a long attachment. And, and, and to me, that, that's that sort of awareness that when you're in a position of power, you don't actually know what's going on. And one, one of my favorite stupid examples in the book, I heard about this from uh, the executive assistant for a CEO of a Fortune 10 company. I don't know very many, but I ran into this woman once, and she told me the blueberry muffin story. Okay, so here's her boss. He... He goes to early meeting and he just says, casually, it's a breakfast meeting, where's the blueberry muffins? That's all he said. You know, he, it was like small talk. Then for the rest of his life, everywhere he went, there was piles of blueberry muffins. <laughs> Be, because and it was in the notes. Don't forget the blueberry muffins. Loves blueberry muffins. And to me, that's I, I, like, I just imagine all these poor caterers and assistants running around for years, just trying to find blueberry muffins when they were hard to get. And, the, and, and it does seem like blueberry brand or who knows what the heck's going on. But but to me, that's an example that, that when people are in positions of power, they're in danger of being oblivious to the effects of their actions on others. So recognizing that self-awareness around, okay, I'm in this new position of power. My brain actually changes. My behavior and style of interaction changes. And there are all these downstream consequences that either structurally I'm just not aware of because my life has gotten a little bit easier. I can park closer to the building. I have a larger stipend. I can fly business. And also 
looking upward, right? So that assistant doesn't want to be in another room where there's no blueberry muffins because now her job is on the line. So what can we do to be the antidote to that power poisoning if we ourselves might now be in a new leadership role? So this is back to John's stuff on self-awareness, and there's lots of ways to get self-awareness. One, one of my favorite ones, and this is a, a CEO of a nonprofit that I worked with for a bit, and it's very successful, and she had this philosophy of, at least she said in every office she'd ever worked in, she also had ran a large law firm, so she had a lot of this too. She said, there's always one or two people who complain constantly are known gossips, and she said... Uh, there's always going to be one. If you think you can get rid of one, you're living in a fool's paradise. And she said, so first of all, I, I become friends with that person so I can get the information from them and, and create psychological safety so they can complain to me. And then the other thing she said, which is more sneaky, is that if you become friends with that person, you can influence the gossip stream because <laughs> <laughs> they're your friend. <laughs> but I like the idea. And then I, we have a whole bunch of other uh, standard stuff in the book that You've heard of one, one classic one is to the extent you can like shadow employees or work along with poison, and understand the journey that, that, that they're going through. We have an example of a high school principal from New York City, and uh, she was constantly saying, and this is friction, that why are all my students late? They're lazy. They gossip. They're smoking dope. I mean, <laughs> they're on their phones, all the stuff that happens in high school, right? And so she started uh, shadowing students. And she said, it wasn't their fault, it was our fault. And, and, and she, I remember her telling the stories in Chicago. And she said, so I followed this girl. She had a class in the basement. Her faculty member kept her two minutes late. She had three minutes to get up to the top floor, which was a seventh, seven-story building. She had to like run up this, and she had to change her tampon. So this is like, it was no way she was going to make it. And and so then so then what the principal did, she said, well, we, we started cracking down on teachers who kept students late. So that's changing. And the other thing is we gave them seven minutes rather than five minutes, you know, to, to go between classes. And I thought that was a pretty good example of, of, of her thinking that it was a student's fault when in fact it was structural friction that was in the system. So it sounds like raising that awareness is, especially in a position of power, is ingratiating yourselves and creating that open line of communication with a, a potential gossiper or someone who has all the information, but also just putting yourself in other roles from time to time to, to sit in another seat and experience the friction from another angle or another view to bring your awareness to it. Yeah, and, and I, I think that's why very often sometimes the best leaders I'm thinking, uh, I bashed General Motors, so I'll say they were great CEO, Mary Barra. She's had every different, she, her last job was head of HR, but before that she was head of product development. Before that she was head of manufacturing, and before that she ran a plant. So somebody like that who's a CEO, they're not just from finance. They know how the whole thing sort of glues together. And, and, and I think that those sort of people, um, it, it's, great, it's, it's great to be able to have empathy for other folks if you don't have expertise. So I, I should not, you know, practice doing heart surgery tomorrow, for example, I'd kill people. But the idea of also having, having uh, people understanding how the organization as a whole works is really important. So in your research for this book, and it was a seven-year project, was there anything that was really sort of you going in a preconceived notion around friction that shifted after doing these interviews and doing this research? If I would pick a preconceived notion uh, it was my bias that uh, when it comes to government, I, I had two biases. One was it was unfixable, and two, the people who worked there didn't care. 
the more that I learn, actually, the opposite is is true. At least in many cases, and I already talked some about the Department of Motor Vehicles at Stanford and how much the employees care about making things better. And one of my favorite examples in the book, there's a, a nonprofit in Michigan called Sevilla, and uh, the folks at Sevilla were very in, upset because there's it's a benefits form that two and a half million people in Michigan complete to get things like food, uh, financial assistance, uh, health insurance, and so forth. And it was a thousand questions long, forty two pages long. My favorite question was, "When was your child conceived?" And it was a really difficult form to fill out. And and, and the folks at Sevilla. What they did was they started working with the government, including the people who ran the agency, to fix the form. And the people who in the in the agency were embarrassed about it. They actually just didn't quite know how to do it. And then they started working with uh, uh, citizens, and they did a whole bunch of prototypes. And now, if you fast forward, the same form uh, it, it's been modified uh, massively. Your you know your audience can look it up. It's Project Reform. It's eighty percent shorter. And people make far fewer mistakes. It puts far less uh, administrative burden on the system. And that was a case where everybody wanted to work together to fix the form. And to me, uh, when I first heard, because I actually met the guy, Michael Brennan, who's a CEO of it, before he started working on the form, he literally got on the ground and rolled out the form and said, I'm going to fix this. And I say, who the, I just met him. Who the hell are you? You know, you meet somebody in three minutes, he's on his hands and knees, he's rolling out this thing. And, uh, it was one of those things where it actually was was uh, possible, both the optimism and the fact that government can change. And so the, I guess if the state of Michigan can do it, maybe the rest of us can do it too. So so that's a, that's some of the things that, that sort of changes. I felt, I felt better about the possibilities of fixing things because we started out very pessimistic in this project and we got more and more optimistic as it went on. Yeah, I think for us internally, one of the things that we've noticed, sort of two trends, the, the trend to automation and bringing more technology in with the hope of becoming more efficient and now adding AI into the mix. I think a lot of people have blind spots around friction with technology and how it interacts with team members. And obviously, we've talked about a lot of different factors in that, but I'm really curious your perspective around AI and how it might create or impact friction in an organization. Well, well what is it? I, I'm being very careful not to parade myself as an AI expert. Even the, the number of people I know who become instant AI experts is kind of cracking me up. I, I didn't know they knew anything about AI until three months ago. So, but, but I do try to hang out with people who I think are actual AI experts, and here's what they tell me. So there's, there's a woman I'm, I'm working with. Her name's Rebecca Hines. She's, uh, she's head of the Work Innovation Lab at Asana and is doing a bunch of research. And it, this has been going back for six or seven years about AI implementations. And the thing that she is finding about AI implementations, and this is like the racetrack analogy we're talking about again, is if you just throw the technology to people and, and say, if you don't start learning how to do it immediately, you're stupid. And this is happening in some organizations. I'm sorry, but it is. But, but, but if you take the time to work with them to both gain their acceptance and show them how it works and also to, to make your AI t- tools so that rather than um, having them be confused about how to improve their jobs, that the AI tools are modified to actually become assistance for their jobs so the tools become better. So that's actually sort of slow down both to have the iterative um, discussion between the people who do the work and the, and, the, and the people who develop the AI tools 
and get their acceptance, that's where it seems to work. And by the way, uh, to say something good about Microsoft, Microsoft, despite you know all the sort of, it seems like uh, AI tools have appeared immediately, they've been very conscious, very clear about moving slowly with open AI to bring it in at a speed that they believe will not overwhelm us as users, will not cause legal problems, will not cause ethical problems. And, and there is some tension between OpenAI and Microsoft that OpenAI wants to go faster than Microsoft, but I think it's a constructive tension. So to me, that's the thing that I'm thinking about, about um, AI is that I think if we do it with a little bit awareness and, and knowing when to hit the gas and knowing when to hit the, the brakes, I think they're going to be pretty good. And, and this is straight out of Microsoft's strategy. This is something they're public about. And so I have some Hope. Bob, we'd love to hear one key takeaway that you wish the readers and our audience would implement from the Friction Project. Well, if I, if we're, let's be really specific. My favorite method that's in the book, uh, and which was developed with the aforementioned uh, Rebecca Hines at the Asana Work Innovation Lab, is this meeting reset tool. Essentially, all that she did was have 60 Asana employees go through their standing meetings in their calendars and rate them in terms of how important they were and how much work they were. That was, and then it turned out that about 20% of their meetings were really a lot of work, but not very important. <laughs> so, so, and then she worked with them to eliminate some of them, to make them less frequent, to make them smaller, to replace some with emails. And the average employee saved about uh, four hours a month. And, and I don't think, and this is in Harvard Business Review and it's in our book and stuff, Yeah, you know, your audience can look it up. But to me, I think it's a pretty simple thing that I could do right now is I could just look at the standing meetings in my calendar and just sort of that I have in the next two months and just sort of rate them. And, and, and that might be just a little tool that might help them. Yeah, I think we'd all be happy to get four hours a month back yeah. out of meetings. <laughs> yeah, an hour a week. Thank you so much for joining us, Bob. This is a pleasure. And where can our audience find out more about you and the Friction Project and the work that you do? Uh, I think if you just go to bobsutton.net, which is my my website, you can find it. And, uh, you know, the book's on Amazon. It's a, it's a book that'll be everywhere. And uh, I think that's the main places to sort of go. Just bobsutton.net is where most of the major things about me are sort of hiding. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Thanks so much. Thanks, John. Thanks, AJ. AJ, I really love this topic. And there was something that I want to just state again, because I can't mention it enough in this episode, that if you're finding connection difficult, there is either something that you're doing that is pushing people away or something that you are not doing that's pushing people away. And that is adding friction to your relationships that make it difficult for people to want to hang out. It was so important to recognize when you are the cause of that friction and for Bob to share how we can overcome it. This week's shout out goes to Nicholas who writes, Hey everyone, I'm Nicholas, a computer software engineer who recently moved to Austin. I found myself in a new city, not knowing anyone and feeling a bit lost. Now, I've been a long-time listener of the Auto Trump podcast, so I felt that this was the perfect time to dive into the X-Factor Accelerator. And as a software engineer, I'm all about problem solving, but navigating a new social landscape is a challenge. Now, I have felt like a lone wolf and wanted to find my wolf pack. 
The Art of Charms X Factor Accelerator Program gave me the practical skills and support of a network. It wasn't just about making friends. It was about understanding social dynamics and becoming more charismatic and leveraging those skills to truly connect with people. I learned how to take advantage of being the new guy in town to quickly ingratiate myself to a vibrant Austin tech scene. I've met plenty of creatives and like-minded individuals who not only enriched my social life, but also share my passions. The social capital strategy is easy to use and the Art of Charms value framework is incredibly helpful to understanding the intricacies of emotional intelligence. So to all my fellow software engineers or anyone navigating this new chapter in their life, I highly recommend the Art of Charm X Factor Accelerator. It's not just about fitting in, it's about thriving. Trust me, it's been an invaluable investment in both my personal and professional life. Thanks to the Art of Charm team for creating such an impactful program. And this is why we love working with engineers and software developers so much. We are able to speak their language through all of the research that we have put together. This makes following these frameworks and strategies so easy. And not only that, but incredibly fun. Now, before we head out, could you do us and the entire Art of Charm team a huge favor? Head on over to your favorite podcast player and rate and review the show. It means the world to us and helps others find us. And another thank you to our producers, Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery. All right, everybody, go out there and have an epic week. You're